0: Just like Jason said, uh, The Conquerors was probably the most epic event we've done yet or been a part of at Vertical Life Church, and uh, I want to give just a shout out to Lamb of God Fellowship in Montrose, and just to let all of you know that without that church, it would not have happened. They supplied 99.9% of the finances and 99.8% of the resources, including volunteers, They showed up with a group of 30 volunteers to help us with that event. They supplied all the resources, everything that was broken and busted from the assemblies to uh, the performance. They took care of everything so that the gospel could be preached in Clio and that. It could encourage the work God is doing with our church. So if you know anybody from that church, or, or you uh, rub shoulders with anybody, please just tell them how grateful we are, and uh, we're going to be doing something for them. I don't know if we're going to buy like a life-size card and have everybody sign it. I don't know what yet, but be thinking of just a way we could show our gratitude to that church, and it's awesome to see how God is fostering these partnerships uh, in our community. Um, today... We begin embarking on a new journey. We are going to be uh, going through a series called the Joy Set. Uh, Really, it's going to be a study in the book of Philippians, and I'll kind of explain the name uh, a little bit uh, later. But we're going to be taking a look at what God's word has to say through Philippians. Uh, I don't really see anybody here today that is um, especially new, but as we do, we like to kind of journey through the scriptures and we like to discover what God has to say through his word. And we believe at Vertical Life Church that everybody matters to God. Everyone matters to God. And one of the ways we discover how we matter is through the word of God. We believe here at Vertical Life Church, we have a core value of unyielding truth. And then it's through the word of God. As we study the word of God, this is one of the ways in which we can hear God speak directly to us receive revelation, foster our relationship with him, and we can discover through his word what is wrong in our lives, and how we can correct what's wrong, how we can live according to his will, and we can live towards the very thing Jesus came to provide us, which is a very abundant life. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to try to discover what God is saying through the book of Philippians and today is going to be kind of an introduction to the book to give a setting, some some background to help us connect with where we're going over the next few weeks and to see where Paul, the apostle, the writer of this book, is coming from. We're going to set the foundation and, and see how he's encouraging these first century Christians in the city of Philippi. Now, i uh, the city of Philippi, I don't know if you knew this, but is, is famous in the course of my time growing up in school. I don't know if uh, you all remember, but in high school, you tend in English class to go through Shakespearean literature. Anybody remember that? And anybody in that age bracket going through that right now? Shakespeare? Right? One of the most famous plays of Shakespeare is the play of Caesar. You know the famous line, et tu Brute, right? It's when Caesar realizes his closest confidant, Brutus, is also one of his betrayers. And as he is finding or uh, enjoying his last few moments alive, William Shakespeare has this play. Well, that play was based on real life events and the city of Philippi is actually where Mark Antony defeats Brutus and Cassius, the two main uh, guys involved in that whole uh, play, that whole scene. And uh, later on, Octavian, who uh, defeats Antony and Cleopatra, as that story and that saga kind of continues, he defeats them and later turns Philippi into a military outpost. And so he stations uh, old soldiers there and, and other soldiers there. It kind of is a base of operations, so to speak. And it becomes a kind of an urban center for, for a lot of business and a lot of uh, religions. It becomes a pluralistic society. They have temples from everything from the worship of Caesar to Egyptian gods and goddesses and the like. Uh, so when Paul, in the book of Acts, when he visits Philippi for the first time, he meets this woman named Lydia. And she is known to what is called the, be a seller of purple or purple clothes. And back then, through the different dyeing processes, these clothes would have been very expensive. So she was a wealthy, a very affluent woman. And so the city of Philippi was basically an equal opportunity location. You could be uh, just about anything you wanted to and have opportunity to be successful. Now, Lydia later became one of the founding members of the Philippi church and a leader in her own right. Also, when Paul visited Philippi, he also encountered a slave girl. And this girl was possessed by a demonic spirit or many spirits, and it gave her the power to tell the future. And that was how she made money for her owners. And she began to disrupt Paul's ministry. Anywhere he'd go to tell the gospel or preach the gospel or engage people with the message of Jesus Christ, she would be there to cause disruption and and antagonize him. And finally, Paul kind of got in the flesh a little bit, got irritated with this girl, and he cast the spirits out of her really just to shut her up. And, uh, and what happened when he did that is she lost her ability to tell the future, to divinate the future for her slave owners. That obviously made them a little upset. And so they went to the local magistrate and used their influence to have Paul beaten half to death and arrested. And so we could see through just the the ongoings of the culture and in the city, we see that business in this time had an influence over, much like today, has an influence over the political spectrum uh, and uh, the scene and in the everyday daily life. And so here, as we engage this book, I don't want you to feel like you can't connect with it, as if this is just a 2,000-year-old letter by some old and dusty guy, uh, you know, written a long time ago. Because God, he left this book, not just to a people 2,000 years ago, but he preserved it for us today, to encourage us in our faith. And the Apostle Paul He wrote this letter to the Philippians from prison. Many scholars believe that that he was in prison in Rome shortly before he he finds his own end as he's executed for his faith. So more than likely, he was imprisoned in Rome. But Paul writes this letter, this encouraging letter to the Philippians from his jail cell in Rome shortly before his execution. And in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, really this is our, our key verse today, he begins this letter to this church by referring to himself in a kind of a particular way. He says this. He says, this letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ. Paul refers to himself as a slave. So not only was Paul in prison, but the word slave really suggests kind of bondage or being imprisoned. And I had to ask this question, and I was thinking through this this week, just reading this first verse, how he refers to himself as a slave. And I thought, you know what? Life can feel like a prison sometimes, can it? You ever feel like that? You feel like you're trapped? Maybe you're just trapped in your own mind. Nothing's really going wrong. There's just this, this overwhelming feeling of just being stuck or trapped, overwhelmed, bogged down, or unhappy. I felt like that. Like, man, there's no, nothing wrong in the whole world. Why am I so gloomy? Why am I so unhappy? But, you know, this isn't just an individual experience. This is a trend that is actually permeating our, our, our culture. There is a contagious unsettledness in our culture. There's a contagious negativity or sadness or depression in our culture. I've had the uh, privilege of meeting with area leaders in our community who have identified this, this epidemic, this, this kind of cloud that is even over our own city in some ways. And we're coming together to try to figure out what are some solutions that we can create and come up with that we can work together to bring to our city to help alleviate some of this uh, cloud of negativity or uh, uh, sadness. You see, the truth is, where we are today in all of history... As we have more access to information than ever before. We have more technology than ever before. We have more conveniences that are set to make our life easier than ever before. But these things aren't making us happier. Rather, they are making us sadder. We have more fears, more worries, and it's only increasing. According to uh, ScienceDaily.com, depression is on the rise in the United States. According to researchers at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health and CUNY Graduate School of Public Health and Health Policy, from 2005 to 2015, depression rose significantly among Americans aged 12 and older, with the most rapid increases in younger people. The findings appear in the Journal of Psychological Medicine. And these results, they transpired, the, the testing transpired from 2005 to 2015. And it shows that there's an increase significantly in, among persons, uh, 6.6% to 7.3%. And the not- most notable rise was among those ages 12 to 17. And I have to ask the question, why is that? 12 to 17, the most rapid rise, increasing from 8.7% to 12.7% by 2015. The increase in rates of depression was most rapid among the youngest and the oldest age groups. These results are also in line with also studies that find there's an increase in drug use, deaths due to drug overdose, and suicide. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, anxiety disorders develop from a complex set of risk factors, including genetics, brain chemistry, personality, and what I find to be usually the case, life events, because we don't know how to deal with our stress and our emotions. And it's not uncommon for someone who has an anxiety disorder to also suffer from depression and vice versa. We found this out after our third child, after London was born. My wife went through kind of a, a time of uh, postpartum depression, and she was actually kind of more on the anxiety side, and her doctor prescribed her depression medication to help with the anxiety. And we were told that the two are actually, you know, work in in tandem together. You don't really have one without the other. So we, we've learned this personally on a personal level. The leading cause of disability according to the National Institute of Health in the United States from ages 15 to 44 is depression and anxiety. And I have to think like with all we have available to us today from the medicine, from the technology, from the conveniences, everything we have today, this seems crazy to me. It seems crazy that this would be on the rise. On a more humorous note, some psychologists are proposing actual diagnosis for a condition they call selfitis. Have you heard about this? Somebody say selfitis. Selfitis. self-itis. Here here's an article on the telegraph.uk. It says selfitis is the obsessive need to post selfies. <laughs> it is a genuine mental disorder, say psychologists. Now, if you don't know what a selfie is, this is when you get your phone out and you take a picture of yourself, you know, or your selfie stick because, you know, you get a better angle the further away you are. So you you take a picture, you know, you're you're in the bathroom mirror, you're taking pictures of yourself and you post that on Facebook or Instagram or or whatever, you know, your flavor of uh, social media of choice is. But researchers found that typical self-itis sufferers are attention seekers, often lacking in self-confidence, who are hoping to boost their social standing and feel part of a group by constantly posting images of themselves. The research suggests that people take selfies to improve their mood, draw attention to themselves, increase their self-confidence, and connect with their environment. And just in case... If you're wondering if you somehow suffer from this malady or disease, they provided us a few questions to ask yourself, which I will ask you now so you can help self-diagnose the problem uh, to see if you have a selfie-centered issue in your life. Uh, but I'll just as a disclaimer, I'm saying if you have this problem, we already know. We see it on your Instagram, on your Facebook. It's already out there. So you don't have to answer out loud, but you're not fooling anybody, okay? just gonna, just going to say that. So... Answer yes or no to these questions and and see if you have a selfie-centered problem. Number one, taking selfies gives me a good feeling to better enjoy my environment. Number two, sharing my selfies create healthy competition with my friends and colleagues. Number three, I gain enormous attention by sharing my selfies on social media. Number four, I'm able to reduce my stress level by taking selfies. Number five, I feel confident when I take a selfie. Number six, I gain more acceptance among my peer group when I take selfies and share them on social media. Number seven, I'm able to express myself more in my environment through selfies. Number eight, taking different selfie poses helps increase my social status. Number nine, I feel more popular when I post my selfies on social media. Number 10. Taking more selfies improves my mood and makes me feel happy. Number 11, I become more positive about myself when I take selfies. Ooh, you look good. Yes, you do. Mm. Number 12, I become a strong member of my peer group through selfie postings. Number 13, taking selfies provides better memories about the occasion and the experience. Number 14, I post frequent selfies to get more likes and comments on social media. Number 15, by posting selfies, I expect my friends to appraise me. Number 16, taking selfies instantly modifies my mood. Number 17, I take more selfies and look at them privately to increase my confidence. Number 18, these are your closet selfie takers right here. Number 18, when I don't take selfies, I feel detached from my peer group. Number 19, I take selfies as trophies for future memories. And this one, I think, is going to get more people than you'd like to admit. Number 20, I use photo editing tools to enhance my selfie look to make myself look better to other people. All right? If you answered yes more times than no, chances are you have a selfie-centered problem. Okay? Just throwing it out there. Or self But this article also... List some other technological, like, mental health-related issues. And I'm, I'm not making this up, okay? There is what is called nomophobia. That means you have a fear of not being around a cell phone. There is uh, technoference. It's the constant intrusion of technology in your everyday life. And number three, which I think is the weirdest one, is cyberchondria. This means you're on WebMD trying to diagnose yourself, and you instantly feel sick after looking at the symptoms. (laughs) Right? You may have a serious issue, right? But according to independent.co.uk, in an article entitled, The Loneliness Epidemic, we are more connected than ever, but we're feeling more alone. It states that modern life is making us lonelier. And recent research indicates that this may be the next biggest public health issue on par with obesity and substance abuse. A recent review of studies indicates that loneliness increases mortality risk by 26%. It's huge. It's huge. We're more connected than ever before, but yet somehow we're more disconnected than we have ever been. We're more connected than ever before, but somehow we're more disconnected than we have ever been. This week, Facebook announced that the uh, average uh, activity of Americans on their site is down 5%, and they're freaking out. They're like, we don't understand how this could be. It's up everywhere else. Why are Americans using Facebook less? And they find this on the business side to be a problem. But I'm thinking, look at the statistic. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. But that's not the messaging that our culture is trying to drive into us. We're influenced and pushed to be self-consumed, consumed with our Pinterest boards and our brand name clothes, our expensive vehicles, our Snapchat, our Twitter, the latest TV show crazes, to compete with our neighbor in order to be accepted by our neighbor, to have the latest and greatest to live in excess. If you don't have a whole basement full of junk you never use, you're just something wrong with you. So the question is, if we have everything we could ever want and anything and everything we could ever need, if we're more connected than ever before, more comfortable than ever before, why is anxiety and depression on the rise? Why is drug use and overdose and suicide coincide with the rise of anxiety and depression? Why are people becoming addicted to social media? like a drug to the point that it's negatively affecting them on a psychological level? Why are we becoming obsessed with ourselves only to become completely unhappy with ourselves? These are real questions. I truly believe it's because people are searching for something. They are searching for joy. They're searching for joy. And when life Feels like a prison. The one thing that is absent in life is joy, happiness. When people don't have joy, that deep sadness, that depressive state can and will motivate people to seek out means to fulfill that negative or make that negative state subside. So we turn to everything and everything to numb or distract us from the pain in the moment. You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, we could say was in a negative situation. He was in prison, writing this letter from a cell. And as Jason said, Wednesday, we had the conquerors in here. And Mike Benson, the the head conqueror, the, the main guy, gave his testimony. And man, it was so powerful. And I tell you, as a church, we ought to be praying every day for all 40 to 50 people that accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I'm here to tell you, my wife and I were watching. We saw parents and families of people that our kids have gone to school with for years and played soccer with for years. Teachers, all sorts of community people were down here in front saying yes to Jesus Christ. That is a movement of God that we need to be on our hands and knees praying for, praying that we can make those connections and continue to encourage them in their faith journey. This this is something we don't need to take for granted. But Mike Benson, as he was talking, he was talking about how when he was young, his father used to speak negative things into him. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You'll never amount to nothing. And so he had this hole in his heart that began to manifest itself as anger and rage, and he began to act out in rebellion that led to his first jail sentence at the age of 16. He got out only to go into armed robbery and drug dealing and all sorts of other things that landed him back into prison for an even longer stint. And as I was preparing this message this week, he was describing what life was like in jail. You know, for him, one of the worst parts was the food because he liked to eat. But from what it sounded like, that that should be enough to keep anybody out of jail. But it didn't seem like a very pleasant experience that, that you don't go to jail to have life transformation. You go to jail to be forgotten. And as I was looking at this story and kind of where Paul is, he's in jail. He's in prison, arrested for his faith, sitting on house arrest. This is an unpleasant experience. This is nothing we would want for anybody. And yet many scholars agree that the overwhelming theme in this letter to the book of Philippians is the theme of joy. It's joy. In just four short chapters, Paul mentions joy, or rejoicing at least 16 times. if you look up the definitions for joy, it really just means happiness, gladness. Essentially, both terms are, can be used synonymously, they can define or will be defined by that which is encountered emotionally with a pleasurable or satisfying experience. Even in the scripture in the original language, the words translated as joy can be used for happiness and gladness, etc. You know Paul. He knew what joy was all about. He had it in his writing to encourage the church in joy. But Paul, you know what? He was not just in prison, but seemingly his entire life was in prison. In the book of Corinthians, he's writing to another church in another location, but as he's debating some issues and discussing some issues with them, he begins to recount kind of his life experiences, things that he has endured over his life for Christ. And beginning in verse 23, this is what Paul says about his life. He says, are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I've worked harder, I've been put in prison more often, I've been whipped times without number and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I faced danger from my own people, the Jews as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities and in the deserts and on the seas, and I face danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and I have often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep warm. Just one of these experiences would be enough to wreck most of us. So how could a guy who has experienced all of this through his life, who is currently awaiting sentencing in prison on trial, falsely accused for his faith, not only right from a place of joy, but right to encourage others to be joyful. It's because for Paul, his circumstances did not define his state of mind. His state of mind determined his circumstances. For Paul, his circumstances did not define his state of mind. His state of mind determined his circumstances. He had a different kind of mindset than most people. A mindset is essentially the established set of attitudes held by someone. The established set of attitudes that you have is a mindset. And Paul's mindset was not a mindset that changed based on his circumstances and struggles. His mindset determined how he experienced his circumstances and his struggles. And his mindset was based on one thing. You know, though joy was mentioned 16 times in four chapters, there's something that was mentioned far more and far greater. Jesus Christ is mentioned 60 times or more in just four chapters. Paul's mindset was centered on one thing, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, this is why the impact of that first introduction is so powerful because Paul, he was not a slave to his circumstances. In Philippians 1.1, Paul says this letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. He was not a slave to circumstance. He was a slave to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul was able to have joy in his circumstances because of this relationship with Jesus. His identity was in Jesus. His value was in Jesus. Because being a slave of Christ, it doesn't tie you down. Being a slave of Christ sets you free. It sets you free. In John 8, 36, Jesus said, so if the Son has set you free, you are what, church? You are free indeed. When you have a relationship with Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, he begins to change your nature. He begins to do a work, making you into a new creation. Paul to the church of Galatians in Galatians five twenty two, he says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. What is the first thing Paul lists there from the Holy Spirit? It's love, right? Because love trumps everything. Jesus said the two greatest commandments are love God with all you are, love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the dominant structure, the dominant thing that should drive everything in us. But what is the second thing that's labeled? It is joy, happiness, gladness, There's joy in the presence of God. When the spirit of Christ is in you, joy should overflow from your life. And joy is not just a feeling. It's not just feeling happy for a moment, but true joy can be found as a state of mind, as a state of being in every circumstance. You see, for Paul, knowing Jesus did not just give him a positive mindset. It gave him a joy set. Everything he encountered, From near-death experiences to false accusations to imprisonment, Paul experienced his life through a joy set because he knew everything Jesus Christ did to save his soul. And he knew everything Jesus was preparing for him on the other side of glory. He knew that through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, he would be able to joyfully endure every hardship because even more joy is awaiting on the other side. Jesus said, when we pass from this life to the next, if you're a believer in Christ and you see him at the gates of heaven, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter the what? The joy of the Lord. This is what God plans for each and every one of us. And Paul knew the joy that was awaiting him. That joy rose up within him and that joy drove him. Paul knew the truth of Psalm chapter 30, verse 5, that says weeping may last for the night, but what church? Joy comes in the morning. Knowing Jesus and having a relationship with him does not exempt you from hardships or struggles. Paul was in prison. He was falsely accused. But knowing Christ and having a relationship with God gives you a joy set. A joy set that gives you the strength to endure hardships, to weather every storm, because you are viewing your life through the lens of your faith and not your failures or your circumstance. So think about your life today. What kind of mindset do you have? Is it one of joy or is joy something you long for? You know, maybe it's been a while since you could honestly say that you've been happy. There are times in my life where I felt like, man, I'm just wandering in a desert. Maybe if you take account of your life, you'd say, you know, it's been a while since I've been happy. And I'm not talking about laughing at something that's funny, but just an overall state of mind. It's been a while since you've really experienced joy. This is the inheritance of the children of God. Jesus came to give you life, to give you life more abundantly. God's will for everyone is that we would experience his joy to the full. Maybe you're here today and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but you're struggling. You're struggling with having joy in your life. You're being overtaken by circumstances. You've been viewing life not through a mindset of joy, but through the mindset of your circumstances. In just a moment when we pray, I just invite you to come down and kneel before the Lord and ask God to reveal to you what is in the way. If joy is his will for you, if he's come to give you life and life more abundantly, if joy is a byproduct of the Spirit of God in your life and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you need to come and you need to ask God, what's been stealing my joy? What have I allowed to get between you and me, to get between what the Spirit wants to produce in my life? And allow the Spirit of God to begin speaking to you and begin revealing places in your life, the things that you've been battling with that have been robbing you of your joy so you can get back to having that joy set. Maybe you're here today and there's never been a time in your life where you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We've called out to him and said, you know what, God, I'm tired of living on my own. I'm tired of trying to battle through my circumstances on my own. I'm tired of trying to figure all this stuff out because it's not working. I'm missing something. There's something in my life that's just not right. No matter how hard I try, nothing changes. It doesn't matter what I do, no matter what I participate in, or how much I try to drown this feeling. There's this feeling of emptiness inside me that I just can't shake. Jesus, come into my life. Be my Lord and Savior. Fill me with your presence and your joy. If that's you here today, just a moment when we pray you come down and let me show you from the word of God let me lead you into that relationship that will change your life forever let's bow our heads for prayer and just for the next few moments as we go into a time of response Father this world has a way of draining the joy right out of us God, we know that joy is a birthright. It is something you will for us. It's a byproduct of your presence. It's a gift through your relationship with us. And it's what we are waiting on the other side of glory when we see you face to face. God, we as followers of Jesus Christ, we should be the most joy-filled people on the planet. When people see us, they ought to think, man, what's wrong with them? They're always full of joy. And we could say it's because Jesus died for our sins and rose again and conquered death and has given me new life. And because I know him as my savior, I have every reason in the world to be excited, to be happy, to be joyful. And you can know that joy too. But so often, God, Christians are known as the most negative people, the most critical people, the most uptight people. And that should not be our legacy. God, I just pray right now through the Holy Spirit that joy would begin to rise up in our hearts. As we look at taking this journey through the book of Philippians, God, I pray that you would cast out all the negative influences God that every thought that stands against you every twisted lie the enemy God every every thing in opposition in our lives God would just be cast aside and that no matter what we struggle through no matter what we endure we can have the same joy set that Paul had that in all things we can give thanks and rejoice because of the goodness of our God Thank you, Lord, and I just pray for everyone here as we go into a time of response that they would respond according to what you are speaking and doing.